Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the CBS News Roundup ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, President Biden and former President Trump head to the nation's border. This is a Joe Biden invasion. We need to act. That massive wildfire in Texas turns deadly and it could get worse. It looked like Armageddon. It looked like the end of the world. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, a report shows changes in abortion across the nation since Roe v. Wade was overturned. We really see a picture of two Americas, one in which there's increased availability of abortion and one in which there's dramatic decrease. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Texas got a twofer as President Biden and former President Trump both descended on the Lone Star State Thursday to talk immigration and the border, a top issue in the 2024 election. Super Tuesday is next week, and voters in Texas are among those heading to the polls. CBS's Nancy Cordes has the latest on this divisive issue. It was almost like a long-distance debate over what will be one of the most defining issues of this presidential campaign. Both men acknowledged that border authorities are overwhelmed by the flow of migrants into the U.S., but they had very different proposals for how to fix it. Let's remember who the heck we work for. We work for the American people. The president and his predecessor duking it out over border policy Thursday from two different spots in Texas along the Rio Grande. This is a Joe Biden invasion. In Eagle Pass, Donald Trump slammed President Biden for rolling back his executive orders, noting that illegal crossings hit a record last year. So we had remained in Mexico. Remember that? You can't come into our country. We had no more catch and release. Our catch and release was we released them in Mexico. We need to act. It's time for the speakers and some of my Republican friends in Congress who are blocking this bill to show a little spine. In Brownsville, Mr. Biden accused Trump of sinking a tough new bipartisan deal that the White House hammered out with senators last month. Here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. Immigration has emerged as a major campaign issue. Six in 10 Americans say illegal immigration is a very serious problem. Trump has promised to carry out mass deportations if he's elected. Well, absolutely, and you have no choice because this is not sustainable. The cities are going bad. President Biden is now considering his own executive action to tighten the asylum system, not unlike some of the moves his predecessor made in office. Compromise is part of the process. That's how democracy works. Even as all this was going on, a federal judge temporarily blocked a new Texas law that would allow state police to arrest and prosecute people suspected of crossing the border illegally. Also in Texas, a battle against the largest wildfire in the state's history. 
There were already deaths, and the National Weather Service says conditions that could fuel that blaze and others are likely to extend through the weekend. CBS's Jason Allen. The Smokehouse Creek Fire is now the largest in Texas history and has burned more than one million acres since Monday. It looked like Armageddon. It looked like the end of the world. In Fritch, Ryan Hightower says she and her family almost didn't make it out of their house in time. We no longer got off of our street that the entire street was engulfed. So in a matter of seconds. Her home is among dozens that burned to the ground just in Fritch. And the danger is not over yet as firefighters continue to battle the flames helped temporarily by snow and freezing temperatures. My three-year-old, this will be her bedroom. Tyler McCain and his family are still trying to figure out what's next after their trailer home burned down. I want house. You want your house? That was his three-year-old daughter's teary reaction to the sad news. And that pain is shared by so many here now facing a tremendous task ahead. It's heartbreaking, not just for me and my family, but all the other families that have lost. We're a tight community, and I know we're going to pull through this. It's just going to take time. More help from state and federal fire teams is expected here in the area, in part so that the local crews that have come here from around the state to help out can get back to their local communities ahead of the fire-friendly weather conditions expected in the next couple of days. Jason Allen, CBS News in Fritch, Texas. Weather is also an issue in California where there's a blizzard warning in the Sierra Nevada. CBS's Carter Evans. They're expecting snowfall rates of two to five inches an hour. That is a significant amount of snowfall. Then we've got people preparing for the worst here because we could experience some high winds. Yes, 65 miles an hour here in Truckee, but on the mountaintops, they've already measured some wind gusts at 135 miles per hour. So that is the big concern here. The wind, could it blow down power lines? Could it blow down trees, knock out power, trap people in their homes? History made this week as the Supreme Court says it will hear arguments in April over whether former President Trump is immune from prosecution in a case involving the deadly January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol and attempts to overturn the 2020 election. It's a question that's never been before the U.S. Supreme Court. This isn't just me. This is all president. They have to be given immunity. Otherwise, they're going to be unable to act. Weeks from now, justices will hear arguments related to former President Trump's claim and consider whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office. This Trump immunity case is not a case that any justice on the Supreme Court wanted to decide. I think, frankly, they concluded they just had no choice given the importance of the case, the magnitude of these issues. Lower courts have already rejected Trump's arguments of absolute immunity, including the D.C. Federal Appeals Court. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. A ruling by the Supreme Court on the immunity claim is expected by June, putting the former president's federal election interference trial on hold. But the timing puts Trump's legal battles on a collision course with the campaign trail. Legal experts say it's a big question whether the trial can be scheduled and wrapped up before votes are cast. You're starting to get very, very close to that date where the Justice Department will have to say we're too close to an election. We're going to have to fold our tents and see what the world looks like after the election. 
The timing could put the DOJ in a difficult position with early voting in some states scheduled to begin in September. Natalie Brand, CBS News, Washington. Abortion pills will soon be available at two of the largest pharmacy chains in the nation. CVS and Walgreens will start selling the most common abortion pill, Mifepristone, as soon as this month. The pill will require a prescription and will only be available at the physical pharmacy locations and not by mail. President Biden praised the move, saying in a statement, the stakes could not be higher for women across America. I encourage all pharmacies that want to pursue this option to seek certification. Stacey Lynn, CBS. CBS News, Washington. One note, the CDC said Friday that people with COVID-19 don't have to stay isolated for five days, but can return to work if their symptoms are mild and improving. Coming up, a huge healthcare cyber attack. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. A lot of people are scrambling to get their medicine amid a cyber attack on one of the nation's largest healthcare companies. Prescription orders have been disrupted across the nation. CBS's Nicole Skanga. A cyber attack on the healthcare provider Change Healthcare is wreaking havoc nationwide as hospitals and pharmacies can't get paid and patients can't get prescriptions. So, I mean, we've seen a lot of claims coming through as a rejected claim where obviously insurance providers are not being able to pay because of this attack. The company discovered the hack on February 21st, disconnecting impacted systems immediately. Parent company United Health stated in a federal filing. Change Healthcare says it processes 15 billion transactions annually, touching one in three U.S. patient records. I can tell you that this cyber attack has affected every hospital in the country one way or another. John Regi is a national advisor at the American Hospital Association. It's not a data crime. It's not a white collar crime. These are threats to life. In a since-deleted post on the dark web, a Russian-speaking ransomware group known as Black Hat claimed responsibility, alleging they stole more than six terabytes of data, including sensitive medical records. Change Healthcare says it's established workarounds for patients. For smaller hospitals, are we talking about months, weeks, days? The smaller, less resource hospitals, our safety net, critical access, rural hospitals, certainly do not operate with months of cash reserves. Could be just a matter of days or a couple of weeks. The FBI is now investigating this malicious hack. According to U.S. records, hundreds of breaches at hospitals and clinics nationwide are currently under investigation by various federal agencies. Nicole Skanga, CBS News, Washington.
The U.S. Senate is looking into what CBS News found in a year-and-a-half-long probe into how private equity investors are siphoning millions of dollars away from community hospitals. CBS News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. John LaPook reports from Massachusetts, where one company's quest for profit has left a health care system in deadly trouble. This was the moment last October when Nabil Huck and Sanjita Rashid first held their new daughter at Boston's St. Elizabeth's Medical Center. I, I wasn't expecting it to be this uh, blissful. That bliss was short-lived. Sanjita experienced cascading complications from delivery, including bleeding from her liver. Doctors told Nabil they wanted to insert what's called an embolization coil to plug the bleeding. When St. Elizabeth's didn't have the coil, she was transferred to a second hospital. She had another cardiac arrest, and uh, they couldn't revive her. It was shocking, you know. Um, I said, well, what exactly happened? What exactly happened, including why Sanjita died, is now the subject of a state investigation. The hospital is one of dozens across the U.S. acquired over the past 15 years with backing from private equity investors by a company called Steward Healthcare. Last year, our CBS News investigation found a trail of unpaid bills at Steward hospitals around the country leading to a shortage of potentially life-saving supplies. These supplies, we don't have them. So why don't we have them? Because they're not paying the vendor, because they're in financial crisis. St. Elizabeth's own medical staff filed this complaint with the state's health department, saying the manufacturer repossessed the coil weeks before Sanjita's death because Stewart hadn't paid its bills. It's outrageous. It's unacceptable. Why outrage? Because the supplies weren't available that could have saved her life. In December, Stewart announced it was closing one of its Massachusetts hospitals. The company blamed its financial woes on the pandemic and lower reimbursement rates from Medicare and Medicaid. Do you buy that explanation? I think that's hogwash. Maura Healy is the governor of Massachusetts. They've taken money away from these assets, which are so important, hospitals that provide needed care, and they're using that money to line their own pockets. Financial records show in early 2021, Stewart's owners paid themselves millions in dividends. Around the same time, Stewart CEO Ralph De La Torre acquired this 190-foot yacht. Its price tag? An estimated $40 million. He declined an interview. I'm disgusted. It's greed. Nabil says he's trying to focus on the small milestones in his daughter's life instead of wondering whether Sanjita would still be here if the couple didn't deliver at a steward hospital. It's just um, still surreal that uh, she's not here. Stewart says the pandemic and insufficient reimbursement payments from Medicaid and Medicare are to blame. The company says it always puts patients first and said it's receiving a cash infusion that will help. But Massachusetts Governor Healy told me, quote, the sooner Stewart is out of our state, the better. Dr. John LaPook, CBS News, New York. Turning now to Capitol Hill, where there's already a battle underway to replace Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell, who announced this week he's stepping down after nearly 20 years. CBS's Nicole Killian. I love the Senate. It's been my life. An emotional Mitch McConnell took to the well of the Senate Wednesday in a surprise speech. I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. The 82-year-old Republican leader said the decision came after careful deliberation. It follows a series of health challenges, including two episodes last year, where he seemingly froze in public. Okay, Mitch. 
Elected in 1984, McConnell is the longest-serving Senate leader in U.S. history. Rising quickly through the ranks, he was instrumental in reshaping the Supreme Court by helping to confirm three conservative justices during the Trump administration. He's probably been the most consequential Republican senator, if not senator, of the last quarter century in terms of his impact on American politics. Probably the most lasting political move he's made as leader, changing the Supreme Court. And as a result, we reversed Roe versus Wade. Now we live in the Dobbs era and we see the chaos that's created. But his relationship with former President Donald Trump eventually became strained after McConnell condemned his actions on January 6th during the impeachment trial. And more recently, he was challenged by members of his own conference and split with some over issues like the border and funding for Ukraine. President Biden told reporters he's sad to see McConnell stepping down and said they have a great relationship. Leader McConnell says he plans to serve out the rest of his term through 2027. Nicole Killian, CBS News, Capitol Hill. In New York, a judge sentenced a man in a murder that attracted nationwide attention. CBS's Jim Crisula says the victim was riding in a vehicle that accidentally turned into the wrong driveway. 66-year-old Kevin Monahan has been sentenced to the maximum 25 years to life in prison for fatally shooting a 20-year-old woman after the SUV she was riding in mistakenly drove into his rural driveway in upstate New York. Monahan was convicted in January of killing Kaylin Gillis last April. Washington County Judge Adam Michelini. It's obvious to me that you feel justified. You don't take any responsibility for the outcome of your actions. You just don't get it. Monahan testified he thought his home was, quote, under siege by the intruders when he opened fire. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Coming up, a deadly attack on Palestinians seeking aid. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. In Gaza, health officials say at least 112 Palestinians were killed and more than 750 were hurt, as witnesses say Israeli forces opened fire on a crowd racing to pull food off of an aid convoy. Israel is defending its actions nearly five months after Hamas launched a terror attack. But Turkey has joined nations, including Egypt and Jordan, in condemning Israeli forces, calling it yet another crime against humanity. More now from CBS's MTS Tayeb. Thousands of desperate Palestinians had gathered to find food on a rare humanitarian convoy. When eyewitnesses say Israeli forces opened fire indiscriminately. Medics say dozens were killed and hundreds injured. Israel's military released heavily edited drone video of what it says shows how many were killed in a stampede around the aid trucks, but admitted to shooting at a smaller group of people, which Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner described as an imminent threat. How do you define a threat? Were they shooting at you? Were they doing anything? Anybody approaching the forces, despite being um, warned not to, pose a threat. At Gaza City's barely functioning hospitals, doctors told CBS News the majority of the dead were from gunshot wounds. We ran towards the food aid, says eyewitness Anwar Halwa. The Israeli soldiers then started firing at us, and so we left the food and ran. There's been widespread global condemnation of the attack, which Palestinian leaders are calling a heinous massacre. It occurred on the same day the Hamas-run Ministry of Health said more than 30,000 Palestinians, mainly women and children, have been killed since the start of the war. 
And after what President Biden is calling a tragic and alarming incident, he said he would continue to push for a ceasefire and hostage release deal between Israel and Hamas, as well as ramp up aid to Gaza, where the UN says half a million Palestinians face acute starvation. Now to Russia, where President Putin delivered his annual State of the Nation this week. He warned Western leaders against sending troops to help Ukraine repel Kremlin forces, saying that would risk starting a nuclear war. CBS's Charlie Daggett is in Ukraine with the latest. He's making the kind of threats that we really haven't heard for months. Uh, for starters, uh, he said he put the strategic nuclear forces back on full alert once again. Uh, he was boasting about uh, new weapons that he's developed. Uh, he said that those are combat ready, as in ready for deployment here. And of course, that's caused concern here. However, he also took aim at the West. Now, he's saying that NATO is about to launch an attack on Russia. Uh, he said that the deployment of NATO troops, uh, which was a possibility mentioned by the French president uh, earlier this week, would lead to <clears throat> tragic consequences. Now, we should remember that President Putin is facing an election uh, in two weeks' time. So this is a rally as much as anything else. Of course, he's expected to win, um, but it's just another way of sort of drumming up public support. Friday in Moscow, thousands said farewell to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny after his still unexplained death in a penal colony. CBS's Remy Innocencio reports. Two weeks after his death in a remote Arctic penal colony, Alexei Navalny, the face of Russia's opposition movement, laid to rest at 47 years old. Navalny's family and allies say they faced hurdle after hurdle just to get to this day. His mother claimed Russian authorities withheld his body right after he died. His supporters say funeral directors and even hearse drivers have been threatened from working on today's farewell. And as the Kremlin continues to crack down on critics of Vladimir Putin, any attendees could face detention. Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalnaya, warned mourners this week. I'm not sure yet whether it will be peaceful or whether the police will arrest those who have come to say goodbye to my husband. Outside the church on the snowy outskirts of Moscow, riot police assembled to put down any protests while barriers lined the perimeter. Human rights activists say hundreds of Navalny supporters, what's left of them in the country, have already been detained since his death. Since 2021, Navalny had been kept in prison on escalating allegations, first of violating parole, later embezzlement, then terrorism. His allies say they were all trumped-up charges. Late last year, Navalny was transferred to a penal colony above the Arctic Circle. This video of him smiling, even joking with prison officials, was the last time he was seen alive. Russia's prison service said he died the next day. In Kenya Friday, the president signed an agreement with Haiti to salvage a plan to deploy 1,000 police officers to help fight the gang violence roiling the Caribbean nation. This is vicious violence erupted Thursday in Port-au-Prince, forcing the airport businesses, government agencies and schools to close as people fled through the streets in panic. Gangs are estimated to control up to 80 percent of that nation's capital. Turning now to London, where an old trend is making a comeback if you're brave enough to try it. People are doing it in their own backyards. <laughs> the shivering sensation oh, God. can take more than your breath away. That was enough. <laughs> but dipping into a pool, these backyard bathers say, delivers a feel-good frozen feeling. No, it's good. It's refreshing, isn't it? 
experts claim the health benefits on this pathway to pain start by steaming with strangers at 185 degrees. It is actually doing amazing things in terms of reducing inflammation and promoting circulation in the body. But it's the plunge into freezing 35-degree water that leaves sauna-goers smiling. Endorphins flowing through the body, so that's why people will talk about feeling quite high after the sauna and the cold plunge. The shock to the system is electrifying London. I feel great. I feel alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With community sauna baths bubbling up amid the city's concrete rat race, offering a place to disconnect. This is the one place where I'm not reaching for my phone. I'm in the sauna. I'm not even thinking about it. It relaxes me more. I think because you have to slow down your mind and your body. And experts say the more you go, the more you soak up the benefits. Having that once a week ritual can just be a really amazing reset. Letting off some steam in a cool new community. Ian Lee, CBS News, London. We all have friends that are a little too into technology, but some folk are taking that a bit too far. The bride wore white. The groom wore his Apple Vision Pro headset on his wedding day in Utah. Jacob Wright is a tech engineer for an AI startup. His new wife, Cambry, says she was infuriated and warned him against wearing the $3,500 goggles, calling them creepy. A guard snatched them away before the ceremony, but Wright had them back on on the dance floor. He says it'll be super awesome to show their kids the pictures in 20 years. The new headsets have been turning up everywhere. Last week, San Diego police issued a warning after catching a pedestrian wearing them crossing the street. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, changes in how abortions are happening in the nation. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including gender. This time we're talking about a new study that finds the number of monthly abortions in the nation is about the same since Roe v. Wade was overturned. But research from the nonprofit Society of Family Planning, which says it specializes in abortion and contraception science, finds how they are done has changed. Allison Norris, co-chair of Hashtag We Count, which conducted the report, joins us to explain. We have seen that in the 15 months since the Dobbs decision, the number of abortions, if you look at the United States as a whole, has stayed uh, relatively high um, as compared to the time before the Dobbs decision. This national level obscures what's happening at the level of the states. 
Some states within the U.S. have seen an increase in the number of abortions, and then 14 states have total abortion bans, and in those states, the numbers have dropped down to zero in some many cases. And so we, we really see a picture of two Americas, one in which there's increased availability of abortion and one in which there's a dramatic decrease in the availability of abortion care. And it looks like there's also a difference in whether women are going into clinics or hospitals to have these procedures and whether people are doing telemedicine or having pills mailed to them. Explain that to us a little bit. One of the things that the We Count Project looks at is the proportion of abortion that's um, carried out in person where people go to a clinic and what proportion is through telehealth where someone receives pills in the mail and doesn't have an in-person visit. And there's been a steady increase in the use of telehealth for abortion care over the recent years. Um, and we see uh, a pretty meaningful increase in this over the course of our examination. Um, and part of the increase is due to increase in the number of virtual only clinics that have um, have been established in the recent times, in the re recent months. Um, and part of the increase is due to brick and mortar clinics providing telehealth care so people don't come into the clinic. And then the third piece is um, uh, that several states have passed shield laws, which protect the provider in the state to provide um, telehealth abortion care to people in any part of the country, um, which can include states that have abortion bans. And so the, the, the availability of telehealth has increased access for people who live in states that have abortion bans, but also for people for whom travel um, is um, complicated or inconvenient um, and they would um, rather manage their care um, at home. I'm curious as to how you would respond, and I don't know if the study addressed this, but people that are against abortion rights and abortion access are very concerned about telehealth. They say it's not safe. They say that women are at risk. They say that doctors can't see what's actually happening. So people need to be coming into clinics. Can you address that? Yes, I'm, I'm happy to. And I'm happy to really reassure people that there is terrific evidence to show that providing abortion care through telehealth is just as safe as the kind of care that people receive when they go into a clinic, which itself is extremely safe. Um, having an abortion is uh, 13 times safer than um, carrying a pregnancy to term. Abortion care in the United States is safer than colonoscopy. Um, so, and the provision of abortion through telehealth has a similar excellent safety record to abortion provided through an in-person visit to a clinic. And some of this access issue is about low-income women, women that live in rural areas, women of color who can't always get to a clinic. So did your study show anything about that in particular, or is it just, you know what, let me ask it a different way. How does the number of abortions remaining more or less the same illustrate that that is an issue for some people? You, you point out a, a really important point. The um, It is the case that people need abortions and live in places where there's not an abortion provider. This is people who live rurally. Um, it's people who don't have access to transportation or people who live in a state where there aren't very many abortion providers. And so the closest one would be quite a distance 
and logistically complicated for them. So the avail availability of having a telehealth provision, having a virtual appointment with a healthcare provider and then receiving pills by mail creates a space for access for people for whom an in-person visit was really problematic. The cost of telehealth care can also be less. And so there's also a reduction in the barrier of cost. The what one thing that we think is happening is <clears throat> as the barriers are reduced to care, not just for people who live in states that have an abortion ban, but also for people who live in states where abortion is available, the availability of telehealth, the increased availability of um, insurance covering abortion in many states, the increased availability of financial resources for people to obtain care means that people who live in states that protected abortion access are more able to obtain that care. So we see that there was an unmet need for abortion care in states where abortion was available and the changes in the ecosystem across the country mean that the numbers are increased. We're, we're seeing that a, a need is being met for people um, both in states that uh, have protected access to abortion um, and in states that have banned access to abortion. We do know that the people who live in states with abortion bans, um, some of them are not able to obtain pills by mail. Some of them are not able to travel for care. And so we, um, we know that there are some people who are forced to remain pregnant when that wasn't their intention in states that ban abortion care. So I've got to ask you, what happens to all of this if the Supreme Court actually bans that uh, the drug and the abortion pill? Does this mean fewer people will be able to have access? If, if so many people go, are going by telemedicine now, what is what happens there? There is an important threat um, in the that would be realized if uh, providing um, abortion medication through mail was no longer available in the United States. It's a access to care that serves many thousands of people every month very safely um, and allows people to have access to health care that they need and that they want. And so it would be a real blow to disrupt that system through um, any kind of extra regulations or changes in the capacity of providers to provide that care. Many anti-abortion rights activists and some conservative states such as Alabama think that's a good thing. Why isn't it? Access to abortion care is vital. There's great important evidence that shows what happens to people who are denied an abortion that they need. Um, and those show those those data show that people are more likely to be living in poverty even years later if they're denied an abortion. They're more likely to be living with a partner who is um, dangerous to them. And um, <clears throat> there's um, very clear evidence at the public health level that access to abortion is um, an important part of people's ability to live um, a better life. And on the individual level, we see this play out um, that uh, people's lives get turned upside down if um, they uh, are not able to have their bodily autonomy, not able to um, decide when to have a child. And um, <clears throat> there are people in of every belief system 
who, when they have a pregnancy that they can't continue, decide to have an abortion. And um, it's really important from a human rights stance that uh, every individual has that choice to decide what they want for their body and for their life. Okay. Let me ask you one more, and I'm not sure you can answer this within the parameters of the study, but you're certainly aware of the controversy over Alabama Supreme Court decision saying that frozen embryos are basically the same as a child and the concern over whether it will prevent people from access to technology like in vitro fertilization. If that were to happen, say, nationwide, what kind of what would where would that leave families who are having who are having trouble getting pregnant, which, you know, for many people is the point that you have control over your ability to have a family? As a public health scientist, I um, am very um, interested and committed to the idea of reproductive justice, which is the ability to not have a child, the ability to have a child if you want one, and the ability to raise that child in a safe and sustainable community. And the disruptions to uh, the availability to of um, in, in vitro fertilization um, and the reproductive technologies that advances that have been made, as well as disruptions to the ability to terminate a pregnancy if you need to do so, they really stand in the way of families being able to be created in the way that uh, that people want to create their families in safe and sustainable communities. And um, I uh, am hopeful that uh, the policies and regulations that are put forward are ones that really have an intention to build um, strong and healthy families in the United States. That's Allison Norris, an epidemiology professor at Ohio State University. Coming up, a tribute to a trailblazing singer. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. You've likely heard about the Moonlander they call Plucky and how it powered through its trip to Luna despite a tough landing. But did you know, even though it was unpiloted, there were really cool things aboard? NBJRTV's Mitchell Zimmerman. The first in five decades. What we can confirm, without a doubt, is our equipment is on the surface of the moon. I did not realize the historical significance of it until my parents sent me a text message saying they had watched it on the news. The Odysseus Moonlander, or ODI as it's called, is now on the moon's surface. But before the low-profile mission funded by private dollars launched, the Moonlander was filled with works from Earth, like poetry, music, clothing, and more. And a painting from Duluth artist Kelly Schamberger. I don't know if I'll wrap my head around it, honestly. It's an honor that only 200 people from around the world received. She won a competition out of 5,000 other artists. I screamed and then I sat back down because the email said that I couldn't tell anyone except my immediate family. This painting depicts a model ship on tissue paper and lights like fireflies behind it, which represents memories with Schamberger's uncle who died at the start of the pandemic. The whole thing is kind of a just processing through the grief of his death and memory and a way to just keep it forever. 
Forever, now enshrined in space, but back on Earth, one of the best moments wasn't the landing itself, but a call from her dad saying how proud he is of her. As a kid, that's quite an honor, um, but uh, my dad also right now has stage four liver cancer. Um, so it's also that like, yes, he gets to see this. And while her uncle didn't get to see the landing, she knows he's right by her side. This one is the most personally significant painting I've ever made in my life. So to have that connection with him and it's like literally sent off into the heavens, like it's just appropriate. Now for the story of a very lucky little pig that was saved from evil humans treating it like a toy during Mardi Gras. WWL-TV's Eleanor Tabone with the tail and snout. What he Dad? He goes by Piglet. No, I'm not talking about the character from Winnie the Pooh. I mean this little guy. He is the cutest, cuddliest little thing. I think he deserves a nice place to live out the rest of his life happily. He is about nine pounds right now. He full grown should be about 80 pounds or so. According to the Humane Society of Louisiana, Pigler was rescued on Mardi Gras Day by Washington Square on Frenchman Street. Jeff Dawson with the agency says a bystander saw people throwing the pig around like a football. A group of men seen tossing what they thought was a Nerf ball to a bystander. The bystander came closer and realized it was a baby pig. Piglet was brought into the Metairie Small Animal Hospital. Vet tech at the hospital, Emma Beach, is fostering Piglet. He was pretty healthy. He was, you know, a little frightened, I guess, emotionally, mentally, but physically he was in really, really good condition. Jeff says since Piglet's rescue, two other people have come forward saying they too were handed pigs. Same location, same period of time, described the same group of people. So yeah, it's all the same story. The vet says Piglet is around six weeks old and by eight weeks he'll have his final vaccinations and he'll be going to his forever family. Lauren Ventrilo, state representative from East Baton Rouge, has graciously accepted to bring Piglet home with her. Piglet suffered no injuries. So with his wet nose and stringy hair, he's happy frolicking in the grass, ready to go to his forever family. But a posse of peacocks in Florida isn't quite so lucky. It seems the beautiful birds are raising a ruckus and the village wants to cut down the problem, literally. WFOR-TV's Trish Christakis explains how that's going to work. Pinecrest is being overrun by peacocks. The village is looking to do something about it. County Commissioner Raquel Regalado says they're calling Peacock Population Control a pilot program to start in about a month. Well, what exactly does this entail? Vasectomies for the male peacocks. So we did a lot of research with Fish and Wildlife to see if we could move them, if we could find a sanctuary. And in, in that process, we were able to find that this was a viable solution. Some neighbors complain that peacocks are scratching up homes and cars and creating messes on their driveways, while others say this is ridiculous. Probably one of the dumbest things, cruelest things I've ever heard of. You don't do that. Mother Nature takes care of it. You don't like the way their stuff smells, move away. Exotic animal veterinarian Don J. Harris says giving them vasectomies is natural and safe. An actual procedure takes me about three to five minutes per side. It's quick, it's easy, and it's benign. The, the peacock doesn't know anything happened when he wakes up. 
A procedure on one bird can stop six to 12 females from reproducing. Regalado says if the vasectomy plan works in Pinecrest, it could be implemented in other counties. Finally. That's the voice of Marian Anderson, the legendary contralto, singing in front of an integrated crowd on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1939. She was already famous, but the daughters of the American Revolution refused permission for Anderson to perform before an integrated crowd that same year in Constitution Hall. The Lincoln Memorial concert made her an international star, and she took the stage in 1962 for Presidents John F. Kennedy and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Anderson was the first black person to perform for New York City's Metropolitan Opera, and she's won numerous awards, ranging from the Presidential Medal of Freedom to a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. This week, a day after the 127th anniversary of her birth, the Philadelphia Orchestra announced that its auditorium is being renamed for Marian Anderson. A statue in her honor is planned near the venue in the city where she was born. Her niece says Anderson would be humbled. Marian Anderson died in 1933 at the age of 96. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to weekendroundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Have a great week. And Allison Key, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to. <laughs> <laughs> I respond to quickly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah. See, that, that, does, that doesn't count. <laughs> sure, I responded to everything because responding to you, putting reruns up on the podcast was like a form of employment. Yeah. And I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. 
Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you, like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen to Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business.